It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome everyone to episode 52 of True Blue Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you? Yeah, good. I'm barely here. We were just discussing a near-death experience today where I went on a hike and severely overestimated, underestimated the length and height and everything of it and I had to push this back even and send you a photo of me covered in mud because it was just a treacherous, horrible time. <laughs> you nearly didn't make it back down the mountain. I would have been uh, hosting on my lonesome once again. Yeah. <laughs> Permanently. Indefinitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad to have you back. It's it good. Uh, um, we've got some Patreon shout outs, quite a few because we haven't done any for a few weeks. So, uh, yeah, fire away, Chloe. Yeah. Thank you so much and welcome to Annie Hahn, Betsy Violet, Sam Obard, Charlotte Butterfield, Nikki Quino, Marina Walters, Andrew, Sarah Dunlop, Kylie, Amy White, Tegan Brennan, Tony Prinus, Mel Danielson, Bridget Connors, and Julie Cappell. Thanks for the support, everyone. Much appreciated. A quick content warning for today's case. It does contain descriptions of violent crimes, drug use, sex work, and it discusses adoption, all of which may or may not be trigger points for some. So as always, we encourage our listeners to exercise self-care. Today, we're back in my wheelhouse, Chloe, talking about a little-known serial killer named Matthew Harris. This guy was from Wagga Wagga in New South Wales, and he murdered three people in and around Wagga between October and November of 1998. Now, this is not a guy who you're going to find documentaries about, extensive articles, there's no books written about Matthew Harris, there's not even photos of the guy readily available online. But make no mistake, that by no means diminishes the severity of the crimes. This was a brutal spree that this man embarked upon. Uh, It's just one that not many people know a lot about. And it's one of those ones where, you know, his background psychologically is very interesting in the insight it provides us as to what might have led him down the path he took. That path ultimately led to three murders, three innocent people losing their lives, their families forever affected by that tragedy. It'll be interesting for our listeners to hear this tale and decide if Matthew was perhaps somewhat of a victim himself or 
So many people experience what he did and not go on to become serial murderers. Without further ado, let's hop into it. Saturday, 20th of June, 1998, Wagga Wagga, New South Wales. At around 7.15pm, mother of three, Trang Nguyen, answered a knock at the door of her home in Nordlingen Drive. The voices called out, it's the police. Trang opened the door and was immediately confronted by two men brandishing large kitchen knives. Shocked and terrified, Trang was helpless as the two men barged their way into the home. As she watched on hopelessly with her three children present, the two men then turned violent, putting a knife to her throat and demanding cash. The pair made off shortly after, disconnecting the phone line as to delay any reports to the police and with a measly $58 in their pockets to purchase more alcohol. This was just the start of a terrifying crime spree at the hands of one disturbed man in the place of many crows. The Aboriginal people and traditional owners of the land in the Wagga Wagga region are the Wiradjuri people. Their word, Wagga, and similar ones to that, is said to mean crow, in plural, simply repeating the word, arriving at Wagga Wagga, which is said to translate in English meaning to place of many crows. Modern day, Wagga is part of the Riverina, and it's New South Wales' largest inland city. It's a big place, we're talking around 60,000 inhabitants, with the Murrumbidgee River flowing through its centre. It's a rural city, lots of farming on the outskirts of Wagga, but very much an industrious, bustling hub in the centre of town itself. The Defence Forces Training Barracks, Kapuka, are located just outside of Wagga. This is where new soldiers to the army do their recruit training. It's quite well known, this feature, in the area, Kapuka. And indeed, Wagga itself has quite a military presence because of this. Not uncommon to see young soldiers in town and when they have a brief reprieve from training. I've spent a little bit of time in Wagga, gone to the Vic and the Union for a few brews. I've got some family in the surrounding area, actually. One thing I want to mention about Wagga Club is this thing called the Wagga Effect, which is basically a theory that the media has come up with to describe the disproportionately large number of elite sports people who've come from the area. And of course, it's a theory and a bit of a joke, really. Not sure there's any credence to it in reality, but... Some notable names from the region are Wayne Carey and Paul Kelly, both AFL footballers. Michael Slater and Mark Taylor, both Australian Test cricketers, opening batsmen, the latter a former captain and now Fujitsu air conditioning ambassador. Steve Elkington, the golfer, I think he won a USPGA, Elks. And Scobie Breezley, a horse jockey. And Dame Edna Everidge, fictional and not a sports person, but she was born in Wagga before moving to Mooney Ponds, apparently. Fun fact. Wagga, unfortunately, has less celebrated individuals in its history, and today we're talking about one of them. 
Matthew James Harris was born on the 30th of June 1968. He was adopted at the age of about 10 months and grew up in Cronulla, New South Wales. His parents had one biological child, a girl, four months older than Matthew. We would later come to understand that Matthew's parents had adopted him when they believed that they would be unable to have any further biological children of their own, but it turned out they could, and a short time later, Matthew's mother gave birth to a son. Matthew was around the age of 10 when his folks told him that he was adopted. This had a huge impact on him at the time and in the years to come. One of the big things that occurred from this point was recurring nightmares about his adoptive mother. In these dreams, a silhouette of her would appear, brandishing a large knife. He thought she was trying to kill him. These nightmares would go on for years until Matthew eventually left home. Matthew's perception was that his parents, particularly his mother, treated him less favourably than his siblings, probably due to the genetic link. In his early teens, he started exhibiting serious behavioural problems. He began drinking alcohol and wagging school, and then eventually he left home and school altogether. Now, I'd love to be able to give a description of what Matthew Harris looked like, Chloe, but as we said at the beginning, there's just no reliable confirmed photo sources of him out there. I found a few that were possibly him, but none that I was certain of that could be corroborated. So we'll just have to use our imaginations on that front. Matthew would bounce around to a few foster families after this. Around his 15th birthday, he was residing with a family in Gaimea. His behaviour with this family was pretty good, but his adoptive parents, who lived about a 10-minute drive away from this foster home, apparently displayed a complete lack of interest in him and made no attempts to call or visit. From this point on, Matthew found himself living in refuges and on the street in the notorious King's Cross area of Sydney. He became a sex worker and became a heroin user. In January of 1991, he was charged with offences of armed robbery and assault. He'd be sentenced to a term of two and a half years jail for these offences. Apparently, the victim of the armed robbery was actually one of Matthew's clients when he was conducting sex work. Matthew was around 22 years old at this time. While serving his sentence, the social worker at the Junee prison put Matthew in touch with a woman named Elaine de Jong. Both Elaine and her daughter Jane were active in the Triangle organisation. This is a voluntary group which assists adoptees to meet their biological parents. Elaine agreed to help Matthew to locate his biological mother and she subsequently formed a friendship with him. Following Matthew's release from custody in 1993, 25 years old by now, he moved to Wagga Wagga where he lived with Elaine and her family for a period of six months or more. Matthew was keen to make a fresh start away from jail and the life he'd known up in King's Cross in the previous decade, but he did have a few small missteps. He returned to Sydney on occasion and purchased heroin. However, his usage was controlled, more recreational compared to previously, and he did get done shortly after his release for minor stealing offences, for which he was fined for a couple of hundred bucks. Matthew tried to get gainful employment, and he did for a short time, but by and large he remained unemployed for the next half a decade. He worked very briefly at Cargill's Meatworks as a packer and performed voluntary work with the community transport organisation in Wagga as a driver. He also went to TAFE. He did a low-level education course, which didn't really float his boat, but he persisted with it to keep himself busy and to keep in the De Jong family's good books. In 1996, after many years of considering this and indeed seeking Elaine de Jong's help, 
Matthew Harris met his birth mother. This wasn't without some trepidation. He had been concerned that this would just result in further feelings of rejection, and unfortunately that would turn out to be true. Matthew's mother had since had another family. She had had Matthew when she was young. She wasn't ready to have him, and when she'd grown up, she had what she termed her real family. And after meeting Matthew, she wasn't keen on fostering any relationship moving forward. This had a huge impact on Matthew. A few interesting quotes from Matthew Harris now, which we'd hear from him much later in this story, but are more relevant at this point, I think, refer to his thoughts around his family and sex work. He said, Just the thoughts, you know, I've always, it's on record, I've always thought I've wanted to kill my mother and my family and stuff like that. Just being dirty on the world, you know, being dirty on the fact that I was adopted and I was taken in by this family and then rejected by them, in the ship with prostitution and having to lower myself and all that, just all the thoughts. He went on to state that he had murderous thoughts about his family quite often from about the age of 13. He said that his thoughts about killing people continued during the period that he was selling himself for sex. I went with so many blokes, I could have killed a number of them, but I didn't. I didn't go through with that, uh, but even then I had the thoughts. You know, these blokes that that I was sleeping with, you know, that were using me and I using them or whatever, I thought I wanted to kill them, of course. It wouldn't be long until those feelings and thoughts played out in reality. On the 20th of June 1998, Matthew Harris, along with his mate Kenneth Frazier, robbed Trang Nguyen for $58. They busted into her house, at first faking to be police officers, stole the cash and disconnected the phone line before taking off to buy alcohol with the money. They threatened Trang with a knife to her throat, or while her three kids looked on in terror. We covered this in detail in the introduction, and it's important to point out because this is the start of the escalation and descent into violence for Matthew Harris. It'd only be a few short months later that he'd commit his first murder, on the 1st of October, 1998. Elaine de Jong, who we know was friends with Matthew Harris, had helped him find and meet his birth mother, even put him up for a while, well, Elaine had a brother, 62-year-old Peter Wennerbaum. Peter lived by himself in a unit in Jack Street, Wagga Wagga, And he'd had some health issues in recent times, Uh, Peter. He'd had a stroke and this had caused him some ongoing, you know, daily concerns. So Elaine visited him regularly to provide assistance with that. And on a few occasions, she brought Matthew Harris along with her. So Peter knew him. At some point during the day on the 1st of October 1998, Peter Wennerbaum heard a knock at his door. It was Matthew Harris and he asked the older man for a glass of water. It was a strange request and Peter clearly thought so. He was perhaps even a tad suspicious. He didn't invite Matthew in, but he did fetch him a glass and hand it to him at the door. Matthew, however, wasn't after simple rehydration. He stormed his way through the door and into the unit before he proceeded to strangle Peter Wennerbaum to death. Matthew would later comment to the police, He was an old man. There was no resistance at all. I had total control over the situation. He couldn't do anything. Peter did keep some cash around the place, it was said, anywhere between six and $800. This money was never recovered and Matthew couldn't recall taking it. 
It was suggested at first that the money was perhaps motive for killing Peter, that he wanted the money for drugs or other reasons. But it had become evident later when conducting a walkthrough of the crime scene with police that Matthew Harris's reason for killing Peter was much more primal, opportunistic. A detective asked during the walkthrough, Now, when you, earlier you said you came here, you were going to ask for some money. Do you remember if you actually got any money from him? Matthew said, oh, no, no, I don't think I might have. That might have been the reason to come here, but like I said, I ended up asking him for water instead. I I didn't come here to ask him for money. I didn't. I might have said that, but I don't think I came here for the money. The only reason I came here was because I, I knew him, I knew he lived on his own, and I knew I could kill him. Peter's body was found sometime later by a neighbour. This was around three days later on the 4th of October. Police and ambulance were called and it was pretty obvious right away due to the suspicious bruising around Peter's neck that they were potentially dealing with a murder scene. Despite the police feeling this, medical examiners did not establish a clear cause of death, instead asserting that Peter may have possibly suffered another stroke or epileptic seizure. Elaine and her daughter Jane cleaned out Peter's unit following the discovery of his body and subsequent funeral. Matthew Harris helped them clean the unit out. He attended the funeral and played with Jane's children. None of this was unusual as he was close with them and in the time after Peter's death, Matthew was said to have been quite depressed. Again, not unusual to Elaine and Jane as they'd seen Matthew this way many times before. Little did they know at this point that he'd actually strangled Peter to death and it'd only be a couple of weeks later until he struck again. On the 17th of October 1998, Matthew Harris was out on a walk. He'd had a few drinks and decided to go visit Yvonne Ford, a 33-year-old woman he knew to live at 26 Phillip Avenue in Wagga. Yvonne had a mild intellectual disability. She was described as a harmless soul who enriched the lives of those who she knew, and all she wanted to do was get a car, a boyfriend, and have a family. She lived independently and had a part-time job working 20 hours a week at the local boarding kennel. Yvonne was described as a methodical person and a conscientious employee. She'd draw up charts and the like to remind herself of certain tasks that had been done for the dogs, and as she didn't have a car... She got to work via the community transport buses and it was on these that she met driver Matthew Harris. Yvonne was quite security conscious, it was said, and aside from the Woolworths delivery man, the only other people she might have let into her home would have been one of these community transport workers. Matthew knocked on the front door of Yvonne's home telling her that it was Matthew from community transport. She let him in and they had a chat in the lounge room. After a short time, Matthew made a sexual advance towards Yvonne, but he had no intention of having sex with her. This was all a ruse because he had already decided he was going to kill her and how he was going to do it. He convinced Yvonne to get into the bath, offering to give her a neck rub. After a brief period of time, he took his own clothes off and got into the bath behind her. One can only imagine the thoughts going through Yvonne's mind at this point. You know, had she met her future boyfriend, perhaps? Unfortunately, that wasn't to be the case, as right after this, Matthew Harris strangled her to death. Yvonne struggled, so Matthew held her under the water. All in all, it took three to four minutes for him to kill her. This is a later quote from Matthew on this callous murder. We struck up a bit of a friendship from me just driving her around, and obviously I could tell she was lonely, she was slightly handicapped. I didn't come around here for sex, I didn't come around here for anything, I just came around to say hello. I lived nearby, but then these thoughts started entering my head that I wanted to kill her. 
It could have been her. It could have been anybody. She was just unlucky. I just thought she would be easy to target. You know, she wouldn't put up a fight. She would be relatively easy to kill. Matthew added that he felt powerful, angry, just anger, pure anger. He said, not not that she was there, no sex or anything. I was angry at the world. This is why the whole thing has happened, has started, and it's just my total anger building up from. I don't know, from the day I was adopted. It's just all built and built and something has set set me off. I killed her. It'd only be a day later that Yvonne's body was discovered. Police were called. However, a cause of death was also unable to be determined. There was no suspicion of foul play at this point, and Yvonne's murder wasn't reported on in the local press. This gave Matthew Harris the impression that he'd gotten away with this crime, which he had, for now. Matthew Harris was living in a block of units at one Joyce Place, Wagga Wagga, at this time. This place had become a little community of sorts. Matthew knew a number of other residents, including his immediate neighbour, a man named Ronald Galvin. According to court records, Ronald Galvin was the son of Cecil and Iris Galvin. The Galvins live in Wagga Wagga. Ronald was a loving son who assisted his parents in a variety of ways which enabled them to enjoy a full and outgoing life in their later years. He would collect them and take them shopping or on visits to the doctor to see family and friends. He had sisters named Barbara and Cheryl and a brother Brian. So Ronald Galvin was just a regular salt-of-the-earth good bloke down on his luck. He'd certainly never done anything to upset his neighbour Matthew Harris. On the evening of November 3, 1998, so two weeks after Yvonne Ford's murder, Matthew and Ronald were having a drink and a cigarette at Ronald's place. At some point, the Woodstock bourbon and coke wasn't enough for Matthew Harris. That uh, pent-up anger had risen up in him once again, and again, he strangled Ronald Galvin to death. The next night, Matthew borrowed Elaine de Jong's car, carried Ronald's body from his unit wrapped in a doona, and drove to nearby Urin Quinty, which is about 15 minutes' drive away. Matthew was somewhat familiar with the region as Elaine's daughter Jane. She lived in Urin Quinty with her family. So he found a tall patch of grass out in a paddock someplace, and this is where he dumped Ronald's body. Matthew would later have quite a lot of confusion around what exactly transpired with Ronald's murder, many details he was unsure of and confused about. He'd actually go on to overdose on heroin twice in the days after Ronald's murder. Perhaps that has something to do with his memory around the time. Ronald Galvin was reported as a missing person when friends and family hadn't seen or heard from him in days. A Detective Sergeant Spence went to the Joyce Place unit complex and interviewed Matthew Harris and many other residents on the 25th of November 1998 about Ronald's disappearance. Matthew said he'd last seen Ronald at 7 to 7.30pm on the evening of Melbourne Cup Day. Ronald had been sitting on the stairway leading up to his flat with a number of persons, including someone described as a bloke I've never seen before. Matthew said he'd not seen Ronald again since that time. Whatever was going on with Matthew Harris at this point was obviously starting to be noticed. His behaviour was odd, he was strung out on drugs, his memory severely inhibited, and this would be the first time that police noted him as suspicious, or specifically suspicious in relation to Ronald Galvin's disappearance. Little did they know, there were more victims than just Ronald. Ronald. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the days after Ronald Galvin's murder, Matthew Harris returned to Sydney, presumably to buy heroin, as we know he overdosed a couple of times in this period. He maintained contact with Elaine DeJong during this time, eventually explaining to her, I don't feel well. I'll talk to you about it tomorrow. I need to tell you something. Elaine went to Matthew's flat to try and find him, only to discover he'd gone to Sydney. Such was her concern for Matthew that she actually flew up to Sydney for a few days to try and locate him, but she was unable to do so and returned to Wagga thereafter. On the 30th of November 1998, Elaine got another call from Matthew, at which time he said, I need to talk to you. Will you stand by me no matter what? Then he hung up. He called back moments later and said, I'm going to be away for a long time, about 16 years. Will you visit me? Will you promise not to die before I get out? I killed that bloke that's missing from next door. Elaine, likely stunned by the admission, asked Matthew where the body was. Somewhere in Urin Quinty, don't tell anybody yet, I want to do this in my own time. I love you. After the call, Elaine told her husband right away and together they went to the Wagga Wagga police station and reported the conversation she'd had with Matthew to Sergeant Hogno. Matthew's contact with Elaine persisted. Clearly, he felt she was the person he could trust and rely upon the most. He further confessed to her, I killed a lady in Phillip Avenue as well on Caulfield Cup Day. When Elaine asked how, Matthew told her, in the bath, but I don't think anybody found her because I don't think there was anything in the newspaper about it. Matthew pleaded for Elaine to not call it in to give him the chance to go to police himself. Elaine was steadfast in her reply, Matthew Don't come back here thinking that you can talk me into being quiet. You know how I am. Elaine and Matthew made a booking on a coach for him to return to Wagga. However, Matthew didn't show up for the trip. Later in the day, Matthew again contacted Elaine and told her he was going to end it all and overdose on heroin. A police inspector named Axford attended Embarkation Park, Victoria Street, Potts Point, a little after midnight on Tuesday the 1st of December, to investigate a report of a male person who'd apparently overdosed. Matthew was lying unconscious in the park. The ambulance service was contacted and Matthew was revived by the administration of oxygen and Narcan before being taken to St Vincent's Hospital for further treatment. After treatment and the police getting all of their administrative ducks in a row, or so to speak, Matthew Harris was arrested and interviewed. In this first interview, Matthew advised that he couldn't remember making the confessions to Elaine DeJong about killing Ronald Galvin and Yvonne Ford, but with that said, he admitted he indeed was their murderer. Matthew hadn't confessed to Elaine that he'd had anything to do with murdering her brother Peter Wennerbaum, however, and he appeared confused and reticent in the final interview on this same day when discussing the subject. He told police he was very concerned about upsetting Elaine, the person who'd helped him so much and that he dearly cared about. Matthew eventually told police, My mind's not clear on it, but I don't know. 
I think I might have something to do with it. Shortly thereafter, he clarified this by saying he had strangled Elaine's brother, Peter. This must have been a devastating blow for Elaine and the DeJong family to hear that their brother and uncle had been murdered by a man they'd taken in, trusted with their own lives, trusted with their children. It must have been incredibly difficult for them to deal with. On the 7th of December 1998, Matthew Harris took police detectives on walkthroughs of the crime scenes, describing quite honestly what had gone down and how it had all happened, very similar to how Mark Valera did in the Wollongong murders episode, I'd imagine, but obviously with this case being far lesser known, we don't have publicised audio of that. Matthew Harris was obviously arrested and remanded into custody, at which time members of the gallery in attendance verbally abused him, shouting out things such as scumbag and other profanities. A family member of one of the victims drew a finger across their throat while eyeing off Matthew Harris. And it would be around a year until he faced the Supreme Court. During this 12 months, police interviewed him a number of times and pieced together much of his story, which we covered earlier in the episode. This all went some ways to explaining the factors around the dark path he'd chosen to take. On the 3rd of December 1999, Matthew Harris faced court where he pleaded guilty to the three murders of Peter Wennerbaum, Yvonne Ford and Ronald Galvin, and also guilty to the robbery of Trang Nguyen. There was also quite a lot of psychological evidence tendered at the hearing, which we'll run over briefly now because some of it's quite interesting. There were a couple of different psychological assessments conducted on Matthew Harris, and in a nutshell, it was said that he exhibited signs of having schizotypal personality disorder and or avoidant personality disorder. He is someone who is unable to overcome the feelings that life is empty and meaningless and unable to master the skills to overcome the deficits. He had very low self-worth and significant pent-up anger issues that he was emotionally unable to deal with, but he wasn't a psychopath, devoid of remorse for his crimes or incapable of feeling empathy for others. In fact, he'd shown quite the opposite in his life to this point, with some voluntary work and minding kids, etc. It was said that it was a specific set of circumstances, the perfect storm, if you will, that led Matthew Harris down this dark path. He was, as time went, beginning to accept responsibility for his actions and display genuine remorse. This part about remorse was a little unclear, and one psychologist said he mostly felt remorse for his female victim, but not the two males. Whatever the case, I think in fairness, it was important to point out those assessments of Matthew Harris, because it'll be relevant in weighing up his potential for rehabilitation, which we'll discuss just in a moment. On the 7th of April 2000, New South Wales Supreme Court Justice Virginia Bell sentenced Matthew Harris to three concurrent terms of 40 years imprisonment with non-parole periods of 25 years in relation to the murders and three years imprisonment in relation to the robbery, making him eligible for parole on the 30th of November 2023, which is just three short years away from now. But on the 2nd of May 2000, Matthew Harris's case was brought up in New South Wales Parliament, where it was pointed out that in a police record of interview, Matthew said, to murder and to keep murdering and to get away with it was an achievement. I'd still be going if I hadn't been caught. Those who raised this demanded a review of the decision, stating that Harris's sentence was far too lenient. The Director of Public Prosecutions appealed against the murder sentence on the basis that they were inadequate. It'd take over six months for the appeal to get heard, but when it did on the 20th of December 2000, 
The New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal upheld the appeal and quashed Matthew's original sentences in relation to the murders of Yvonne Ford and Ronald Galvin and substituted them with life sentences. And, Chloe, that's the last we've heard about Matthew Harris. He won't be joining anyone at the Vic or the Union in Wagga for a beer in three years' time. He'll be inside now for the rest of his days. It's a very sad case, and our thoughts go out to the victims and their families. Your thoughts on today's case, Chloe? Yeah, I mean, the psychological description of the fact that he wouldn't come to terms with the feeling that he had that the world was empty and meaningless is not something I'll forget about quickly. I've been thinking a lot lately about the debate or the theological debate about how people are either innately good or innately bad or evil, and there's good proof both ways, I guess. It depends on what books you read. I've never really wanted to buy into it, but the more research on true crime I do, the more I think that people may be innately one way or another and then something in their environment triggers them to do these evil acts. You know, the perfect storm for Matthew seemed to have that effect. There are plenty of people with psychological disorders or personality disorders who were also adopted that don't kill. And, you know, there's also drug use in that, which would have a profound effect on someone's mental capacity. And I guess my thoughts are that it's all a lot to take in, but that this is a really sad series of events and too many lives were lost in such a short amount of time. It's shocking to me that this didn't garner more media attention. And I think you're going to talk more about that, Sean. So your thoughts? Yeah, it's strange how some cases garner such attention and notoriety and and some don't. You know, this is one that hasn't for whatever reason, despite it having a sort of, you know, for lack of a better term, a classic sort of US strangler type vibe about it. I suppose you could spend hours dissecting why it's not as well known as others, but as you said, in the end, you know, three people uh, had their lives taken. They were taken from their families far too early and in devastating fashion, which is always heartbreaking to think about. I think the logical part of your brain can certainly empathise with what happened to Matthew Harris throughout his youth. I think that's sort of what separates us, isn't it, from the bad ones, right? Our ability to have that perspective and understanding, but you know, that logic is overridden for me when the emotion comes into it and you think about the victims and their families, particularly that betrayal and that sickening feeling I'd imagine the Dijon family would have had. Now, there's no denying he had an extremely difficult childhood and, and his youth after that, an inability to overcome, you know, uh, emotionally overcome that adversity. But as you said, Chloe, there's a lot of people who experience that and they don't go on to murder multiple people within a six-week span. So, It really just appeared to be a devastating cocktail, didn't it? But, uh, you know, that line he said in the interview about feeling whatever it was, accomplishment, I think, and he would have kept killing if he hadn't been caught, that's somewhat telling, I think, and and it's concerning to say the least. Now, I tend to agree with the notion that he might be just a bit too dangerous in the community to ever be let out, no matter how much he seemingly comes good in the environment he's in. You know, I think any change to that could clearly bring him unstuck, but uh, and that's my thoughts anyway. Yeah. Well, it's been a few weeks since we did this, so you should have one ready to go. Um, let's go on a happy thoughts. What's yours this week? I plucked out a happy thought last week in your absence, actually. You'll be very proud of me. Oh, true. I, I, I haven't done it. No, you haven't done it. I can't even remember what it was, so it mustn't have been that great. But uh, <laughs> uh, my happy thought this week is that um, my little studio is ready to paint. So I've, I've told you a little bit about it, Chloe, but um, where we mm. built, I've, uh, built a little bit of a, a purpose-built uh, sort of 
studio for me to work in but also to do the podcast in as well. So mm. it's a painting stage now, which is where I can start doing a little bit more. So that's my happy thought. Very exciting. How awesome. And is it going to be freezing though? Like where you are is pretty cold and we're now bangs back in the middle of winter. Are you going to want to work out there when it's done? No, it's all <laughs> fully insulated and um, oh, yeah, I've got um, you know, electricity to it and heating and stuff. So, yeah, it'll, it will it probably will be but it, it's um, – it won't be severe, so. Yeah, nice. Um, well, in contradiction to what I said in my opening statements today, my happy thought is my hike that I went on, um, <laughs> yeah. but more specifically <laughs> that there's I'm where I live, there's just so much to do around me and, you know, this um, lockdown has really thrown me um, mentally, you know, part of why I didn't record last week is because I was really struggling. I was, you know, feeling anxious and all the things that I'm sure a lot of people have been feeling if you're in Victoria and having to be locked down, it it just really, really threw me and getting out and being in nature and doing really hard walks um, and risking my life <laughs> apparently is something that I get a lot of joy out of. So I am super, super thankful that that's so close to me and that I still have access to those things. Um, yeah, that's mine. Very good. And if you want to get in touch, don't forget you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail. You can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue Crime Podcast, and you can find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. If you'd like to support the show, you can head over to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes. For $5 per month, you can support the current free content we make on the main feed and get our bonus monthly Blue Label episodes. Our latest Blue Label episode is out now, and if it's not, I'm still working on the edit, and it will be very shortly. This month, we've got a shit episode for everyone, literally. It's a bit of a lighter-hearted one about the notorious poo jogger crime spree that smattered brown across various parts of our country this past couple of years, and we're also talking about the infamous Coogee Bay poo mystery. Yeah, gross. Uh, I mean, it's a good one, but maybe finish your meal or any drinks that you have before consuming that episode. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, there's some other ways, a new way you can support the show too, and a quick shout-out too to Sabas uh, for her generous donation on the new supporter feature. I'm sure many of you have heard the little preamble at the beginning of our episodes about this but basically if you're a listener you love what we do you can give us a one-off donation of a few bucks or as many bucks as you like that enables us to keep doing what we do and hopefully bring you more of it um, with enough support without having to go through you know the patreon rigmarole and whatnot so the link is at the very bottom of the episode notes or simply visit supporter.acast.com forward slash true dash blue dash crime And that's it from us. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll catch you all next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.